Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we look at the science and politics of the coronavirus pandemic with Irv Wiseman and then at working conditions for essential workers, those at Amazon fulfillment centers that pose a threat to the workers themselves and to public health. We begin with Irv Wiseman, director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine, and he answers questions about just why the coronavirus is so devastating and how this virus has exposed the fragility of our public health infrastructure and how that is further hampered by the political response from this administration. We then talk to Shaheriar Kasuji of the Warehouse Workers Resource Center about the Amazon workers who are protesting here in the Inland empire and staging walkouts around the country over the lack of safety equipment and practices in their places of work. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have my brother, Dr. Herb Wiseman, with us today. We're going to talk about COVID or the coronavirus pandemic. And I should just say that Herb is not a virologist. He's a cancer and stem cell biologist. In fact, he's the director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. He was previously the head of the immunology program and the cancer center. He's also widely recognized as a stem cell pioneer in his research. Previously, he was able to identify a marker or the don't eat me cell. He could probably explain it on cancer cells that would make them invisible to the body's own immune system. And then once unmasked, the body would then theoretically be able to destroy the cancerous cells. So Irv, I want to welcome you to Jacobin Radio to talk today about the pandemic that we're all going through. And maybe we could just begin with you explaining to our audience just what it is about this virus that is so devastating to us. Maybe you could just walk us through it. So this is one of those viruses that came from infecting both people and infecting animals so that eventually the genetic alterations that could happen in an animal, say a bat, could make it more and more dangerous, not necessarily for the bat, but for humans. And so the transmission of that to humans follows essentially the path of many other very dangerous viruses going all the way back to AIDS and HIV or Ebola or Zika or Bolivian hemorrhagic fever. A whole bunch of these are viruses that affect us. And to get right to the immunology of it and why it affects us and it affects mainly older people is that we have immune systems that have evolved, that is in all of the animal species, before trains, planes, and cars. So when you get a vaccination, or you have measles, or you have mumps, you have cells called lymphocytes, two categories, T and B cells, which not only respond to get rid of the infection, the microbe, bacteria, viral, fungal, and so on. But they divide a thousandfold, and they live as long as you do as memory cells. And each of them is specific for the particular infection that drove them from the beginning. 
So that's how you get immunity to those microbes you encounter. Before trains, planes, and cars, by the time you reach puberty, whether you were a mouse or a human or a monkey, you'd encountered most of them. So you now were prepared, if you didn't move, to have immune cells that immediately and effectively respond to get rid of the infection. Now, it turns out that the blood-forming stem cells that you have when you're young have to make lots of new lymphocytes to cover the new infections you're going to have. And we and others have found over the last 15 years that in mice, and we showed also in humans, the blood-forming stem cells that take over well after puberty make more of the kinds of immune cells that are fast responders. So they can get rid of the infection, not by knowing that that was this virus or that virus or this bacteria, that bacteria. They have general mechanisms to eat and kill. They also have other things, but eat and kill. The body stem cells, when you age, that take over the blood-forming system, mainly make those cells because before trains, planes, and cars, you didn't have to make a whole bunch of new lymphocytes for newly emerging infections. So this whole story is trains, planes, and cars. But you were saying, though, I want to just, you know, sort of go back over it. So our immune system, once we get older, doesn't develop as much, I think you're saying, right, as it did when we're younger. So we don't or we can't easily build as we're older an immune response um, to new dangers. Is that what you're saying? Right. The kind of response that gets remembered. The memory lymphocyte type response, because you're not making a whole bunch of new lymphocytes that one in a hundred or one in a thousand could encounter a new virus. But now, is there, we go ahead, go ahead. haven't worked out the mechanism for that because as I said, it's well after puberty that this other system takes place. And if you think about it, if you believe in evolution and not divine intervention, then you'd have to say, well, why would you be selected to live long lives if you're no longer reproductively competent and competitive? Because what gets passed on as traits to the next generation is through reproduction only. So I'll just leave that as a puzzle for the audience. <laughs> okay, but there's, and I, and I think later, after we get through this, we can talk about the politics of this because that certainly hints at it in terms of the response, you know, to this threat, which is worldwide and in the era of planes, trains, and cars. But I want to get, you know, just without being too technical, can you talk a little bit about what might make the coronavirus so much, say, more devastating or more difficult to deal with than you know, the other groups of viruses we've had. You mentioned some, and I, and I also, you know, maybe could just bring in there that when the AIDS epidemic 
hit and scientific research, you know, went into full gear. I remember you saying that it was going to open up pathways in virology and, and understanding of viruses and cancers. And I wondered if you see this in the same way. Is this the study of this virus going to open up new pathways as well? But going back to that question, what is it about this particular virus that we know so far? Well, of course, an epidemic and a funding agency response to the epidemic and the desire of scientists to do relevant things has led to a whole group of new people brought into science of virology and virus infections who may not have been there before. Every university I know, we're doing it. So you can thank people like Tony Fauci for saying we need to have more science for this infection. Now, the virus itself appears to first inhabit mainly the nasal passages and the back of the what's called the pharynx, the throat and, and, and going down. It then really becomes lethal when it spreads to the substance of the lung. So it goes not only through the tubes that lead to the lung, but also to the air passages, little tiny places where oxygen gets exchanged and CO2 gets out. It hits those cells with a vengeance. And it starts the infection. And the immune response that comes to it is massive because you have so many different parts of the lungs immediately infected and the lymphocytes that come through back and forth, the body stop in the lung and start their immune response. And they're trying because they don't talk to each other too much, each on their own to wall off the infection that's called inflammation and make killer cells that would either kill the infected cells, that's T lymphocytes, or eat the infected cells, that's the scavenger macrophages in the body. So in this infection, for some reason, not everybody makes a rapid immune response. And this virus spreads so fast, infects cells so fast, that you can get overwhelmed. That means when you're overwhelmed, that the main place that you're infected, I mean, almost exclusively, is where you breathe. And we know that you can die if you can't breathe. Right. But, but what you're saying, though, is that it's the, it's the human immune response that exacerbates the, you know, let's say the bad work of the virus. It does. But in the absence of immune response, I'll bet you the virus would still be bad. It would be bad in a different way. Okay. And so maybe, I guess maybe we, we don't need to go into that very much more. I saw an article this morning that talked about the grappling and the cleaving of this virus and the way that it hooks onto you, especially entering into its host cells. And I just wondered, you know, if this from what we know about it so far, if this is a virus that behaves differently than others, or it's just something new that we haven't developed antibodies to. So this virus has a particular set of 
cell surface proteins that have a different function that they bind to in order to get into the cell. Uh, the virus, as I said, and the infected cells now induce an immune response. We found, we haven't published yet, that the infected cells can put on that don't eat me signal that all cancer cells put on. We don't know yet how important that is, but it is safe to say that if you're young and you have lots of new lymphocytes being made, you'll make an immune response that's effective. So here's two points. One, you want to know everybody who's infected because before they get the symptoms, and some never get symptoms, they'll pass it on with high efficiency. And you've heard, you know, you got to wash your hands, you got to wash surfaces, you got to wear a mask. That's critical. If you stay by yourself, like each of us are now, you won't get infected. The only way you can get infected is if you do something stupid, like go meet somebody at the door who is infected and has not protected. So you've got to be able to test for the genetic material of the virus. Luckily, all of molecular biology, that branch of science, has made very, very fast and reproducible ways to make tests. I want to jump and, in for yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead, jump in. No, just because the testing problem has been, you know, right at the core of what's made this so awful, uh, the response within the United States in particular. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about why it's such a huge problem. Uh, the CDC has said that the way to deal with this pandemic is a box, right? That's testing, tracing, social distancing, and quarantine. The president, the vice president has, you know, promised millions and millions of tests. There was also the issue that, you know, we've seen that in the countries where they have flattened the curve, that they have been able to test massively, yet we didn't use their tests. We want to develop our own. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Why is it that we can't just use the already existing tests? And what is it about this test that makes it so difficult? Well, the test, I'm told, that the CDC chose to develop didn't work well. They depended on it for a long time. And for some reason, the federal government said, all testing has to go through the CDC. So that's like saying all stakes in the world have to come from Great Falls, Montana. Just can't do it, right? So a federal decision or sets of decisions said, you got to do it that way. And of course, you know, it's hard not to see it, that the federal government did not take charge in this administration, like the Obama administration took charge of the uh, Ebola epidemic to set up and to anticipate what you need to do. And the first thing you need to do is, on a global scale, at least of the whole country, make sure that you can get out testing fast and that testing is accurate and that it not only gets out fast, but you get the result fast because Anything you're going to do, isolation or free people up from isolation, means you have to be able to take a sample from their nose and know in an hour or two, 
Are they infected or not? And then you can advise or enforce, depending if you want to go hard, their social isolation. And you can track their contacts and tracks the contacts contacts. This was idea of isolation or quarantine, which didn't require a lot of science, but is an effective way to stop the spread of these agents. Now, if it had been a mosquito-borne or a fly-borne epidemic, social isolation wouldn't be enough. So this is the first, testing. And we, even today, despite the promises, don't have enough testing. So now you've got a way of testing people. But we need to know, is this like other infections that if you recover and you make antibodies as well as activated killer T cells, can you consider yourself safe from a reinfection? And while 99% of the time you could assume that to be so, we do have the experience of HIV, whose target is those T cells that control developing an immune response. That's why we don't have an HIV AIDS vaccine now, 30 some years after the epidemic began, still don't have a vaccine, but we're lucky that we have good responses to it. Do you think that it's going to be that difficult to get a vaccine to this one, too? Everyone says it's maybe a year or more away. And obviously, I can't have you look into a crystal ball, but you know the science. So so the science in making vaccines to influenza, to coronaviruses, is well established. There's no evidence yet that this coronavirus destroys the T-cells, like HIV destroys some of the T-cells. And so the time that is waiting depends on two things. First, when the epidemic became known and the agent became known and you could get the agent out to make vaccines, that was the moment that not one company, not one agency but many groups should have been developing vaccines and been richly subsidized to do it because you need to anticipate that vaccines will work. The second thing, which we're finding out anecdotally, is if you have recovered from the infection, you had a bad infection, you've recovered, do you make antibodies and immunity, T cells? that will prevent you from being reinfected. Now you can do that by case studies, but you better be organized to do that. So you would have done from the very beginning, tracking people, not only who got the infection and by testing had the virus that caused the infection, but you would follow to see if they were making antibodies that you could say, okay, They made an immune response. Then you would say, what's the likelihood as they interact with people who are freshly infected that they get reinfected? And you could also test in their nose, is the virus all gone? So those are the key factors. Now, way back before antibiotics, the way we could treat people 
with these kinds of bacterial or viral infections is we could isolate from the serum or plasma of people who've got the antibodies, there's a way quickly to purify the antibodies so any other virus or infection the person had doesn't get passed on. You collect them all together. You make what's called IV, IG, don't even worry about what it means. But it's convalescent immunoglobulin of the type that can neutralize the virus on contact and or help neutralize or get rid of the infected cells. So you want that. They may be an immediate therapeutic. It's being tested. It used to work before. People used to immunize horses and then collect lots and lots of antibody until they found out when you put horse serum in people, people would make an immune response against horse serum because horses are genetically different from us and the response could be as bad as a disease. But we're working with people and the variation in our immunoglobulins is such, our antibodies is such that probably you can safely transfer them and that will be critical to know. So you got to have testing for the virus, testing for an immune response and know that the immune response is effective. Those people who are immune, if you know that, can go back to work. Okay, so that I want to ask that question because we've seen different responses around the world. And in some cases, they said um, that distancing or you know isolating in place is not necessary because herd immunity will take care of that. Can you explain what herd immunity is? Does it exist and does it work? So it's easy for anybody to understand this. If only 10% of the people get infected, 90% are infectable. So you're not immune for that. If 50%, it's still too many infectable. If 80 or 90% of the people are infected and have a sufficient immune response, now you're getting to where the herd, all of us people, don't have enough susceptible people that you would have the chain of infection to uninfected, to uninfected, to uninfected. That's herd immunity. Now, we're not going to get there with infection because too many people die. And our social isolation is good. So that means we need a vaccine. Okay. And we need convalescent antibodies for those who got infected without the vaccine. Those things should have been going from the beginning full force. Now, you make a vaccine. You think you're making it just like you always made vaccine. And now you put it into somebody of a certain age and you find out there was a mistake in making the vaccine. Another virus crept along that causes a disease. Or you made a vaccine and part of the vaccine mimics your own body structure such that you might make an antibody or a T-cell against the virus, but you also destroy your own organ that has a mimic of that. So for all of those, we have developed for every drug, every antibody, every vaccine, FDA, preclinical proof of principle, preclinical testing in animals as close to humans as you can, and then testing in a cohort of the first group of healthy volunteers. Can you vaccinate them? 
Can you show an immune response? Can you follow them long enough to know that that immune response won't kill them eventually? That you haven't introduced something that you didn't think of ahead of time or couldn't think of ahead of time. So if you now look for either vaccines or drugs, and now you have this time when it's released, a late time, there's a whole bunch of phase one, two, and three clinical trials that you can accelerate before you would know that that vaccine is safe for everybody. Before that, you have to have preclinical testing and toxicity testing. Before that, you have to have a discovery. So when Tony Fauci says year to year and a half, he's saying even with the number of companies or agencies that are starting out, that's the minimum. So he's talking about the, you know, and you are as well, about what the scientific community can do and what it normally does and how long it really takes. And he's cautioning it in the best language possible, given the circumstances that he's delivering this message to. And I wanted to just go into the sort of political side of it in our last, you know, minutes here, because one thing that this virus has done is to show just how fragile our public health infrastructure is or what's left of it is. And when you combine that with misinformation, disinformation, and concentration only on opening up the economy at any cost, even with some, you know, right-wing uh, Congress people and others saying, you know, it's worth it if just old people die, they should be sacrificed for the economy or some such nonsense. But given, you know, the success we've seen in places like South Korea, now China, even if they didn't report all of the numbers, it took a kind of rational response that didn't have the obstacles that we're seeing here. So I guess really it's a roundabout way of asking, are we capable in this country of effectively, first of all, you know, testing and tracing and then devising what next needs to be done next? So in addition to masks, gloves, washing, ventilators, for those already sick or preventing them from getting sick, you obviously have to have testing and antibody testing to know if you can approach herd immunity. You dare not open up social interactions for business or any other reason if you have 50, 70, 80% of the people still infectable. So if you're going to say, I'm going to try to save as many lives as possible without increasing them, then you would say social isolation will flatten the curve and will save many lives with social isolation and all of the stuff we talked about to get people through it. But you'll never reach herd immunity with mm -hmm. infection alone. You flatten the curve, you keep people who aren't infected from being infected. So that means you're now dependent on a vaccine to do the same that herd immunity would do. Stimulate your lymphocytes, get immune memory that lasts your life, and then you should be safe. So that's what the game is. And any other business or economic or personal financial interest has to take a back seat to it. And unfortunately, as you know, is not taking a backseat. So I am afraid we are going to be in a situation where lives are lost that don't need to be lost 
for reasons that are not medical or scientific or public health. It's just money. All right. Well, given all of that and the danger of it, I have uh, one other question about that. And that is if we flatten the curve and there's no new cases, we get into summer. Some people have said that perhaps the warmer weather will uh, stop this. We have, I guess, human experience of other pandemics that like the Spanish flu and others that go on for a couple of years. Do we have any knowledge yet that if we flatten the curve, but then return to interaction, social interaction, not without distancing? Will it just start all over again? Or is there the sort of natural cycle to this? I understand, not by scientific papers I've read, but by looking on the TV, that the infection is in tropical countries. That all should right. answer it for you. Yeah. Yes. You should not, if you're in a position of authority, you can decide what you do for yourself. You probably shouldn't even decide what your children do because they're independent. But if you now enact a policy that puts everybody at risk who hasn't been infected or vaccinated, that's just stupid. We understand the reasons for it. There are people in our country, as we know throughout our history, who have valued economic rights over individual human rights. And we have people of particular religions who want to impose their religions on everybody. Today, we know that human fetal lung put into an immune deficient mouse can be infected with this virus. So we have a way to test and understand the disease. But Trump, Pence, Mulvaney, and Grogan against the advice of the heads of HHS, the deputy director of HHS, the head of NIH, and Tony Fauci imposed a ban on any research using human fetal tissue using federal funds. You could appeal it, but they said, in addition to that ban, which you could appeal because your experiments are going, no trainee who receives federal funds under any circumstance could work with human fetal tissue. This is not scientific. But our labs in academia, we don't have workers. We have graduate students and postdocs and medical students and undergraduates who work. So this was the most effective way to enforce what their own personal, political, moral, religious beliefs are on the rest of the country. Just like you know that Texas can't receive money related to the epidemic to fund abortions. So this is politics which places your own personal beliefs above the lives of others. Uh, So I find that objectionable. I wrote a USA Today op-ed on it, and a much longer article in a scientific journal if you want to follow up. I do know that Amy Goldstein at the Washington Post a couple weeks ago wrote a really powerful article on just this issue, and that 15 states' attorney generals have gone to the federal government to try to stop the ban to see if the use of those human fetal tissues can accelerate our development of vaccines, of drugs, and of ways to 
slow down or halt this epidemic. Does that mean that if you can't use federal funds that once again, as you had to do with AIDS research and others, that there's private venture capital or something like that that could be used? Or is there some sort of ban that's... that's Private venture capital is money to make money. Don't blame them. That's how business goes. But we in the state of California had an initiative in 2004 called Proposition 71 because of the same bans for fetal or embryonic tissue. It was a state's rights issue that funded research that you could use those tissues. And I can tell you, if you follow many of the discoveries we made, even though I told you how long it takes to develop a drug. Many of them are now in late phase clinical trials. And the state of California has done more clinical trials with its small budget in Proposition 71 than the federal government has done in the same field. Luckily, you can vote for the redo of Proposition 71. So if there's any other reason to mail in your ballot safely. It's to redo Proposition 71 so that we get some sense that even if the country stays on a course that values things like money or religion or political advantage over the lives of people, at least in California, we can continue along the road that we began in order to try to save lives for that small window of opportunity they have for therapy. Every time a bureaucrat or a bureaucratic process slows down because they want to have a committee do this or a committee do that, let's meet next month, there are people who will die because their window of opportunity to be saved by those drugs, those therapies, are not able to because it was slowed down. And I've been looking at every step of the way in our research that goes forward. So I complain to the committees that do this or that at the university level, the state level, the government level, because all of that serves purposes, but they create bureaucracies that through that slow it down. I was at a meeting of the Vatican of the Vatican Science Council in 2006, where I said, your ban on fetal tissue and embryonic tissue to do biomedical research, your ban on telling people condoms, safe use sex, has clearly slowed down the advancement of medicine. And from my point of view, just mine, because I know people will be pissed off when I say this, You're responsible for the live loss that you imposed a ban or slowing down or a delay. Let's think about it as if from this month to next month, all you're going to do is philosophize and think about it. So we want to have an efficient, people-oriented way of doing research. And we accept, even in communist countries, businesses spring up one way or another to deliver it. I'm not saying anything that we throw away everything. I'm saying that 
We do things we don't need to do to slow them down, to get them to whatever mechanism you have eventually to distribute. I want to thank you so much. We've run out of time. I guess the last thing to say to people is to write your congressperson and make sure that they save the post office so that we can do mail-in votes in November because it's, you know, we've always said every election is the most critical one. This one really is. We're in a pandemic and we need to change this administration. Irv Wiseman, thanks so much, brother, for joining us today. I wanted to just say Irv is the director of Stanford University's Institute of Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine. He was previously the head of the immunology program and the Cancer Center. He's my brother. I'm proud of him, and I want to thank you so much for elucidating for us the science behind this pandemic and what comes from that politically. Thanks, Irv. Thanks, little sister. (laughs) Thanks so much, and don't go away. Welcome back to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to be talking about Amazon and warehouse workers and other things in this segment. We've learned from the precautions that we're all taking in the face of the coronavirus pandemic just who the essential workers are today in the world. Healthcare workers, of course, medical personnel at every level from doctors to ambulance drivers and everything in between, the ones who nurse us back to health if we get COVID-19. And then there's the workers at every level of the food and supply chain from those who pick the crops to those who stock the shelves and those who deliver our packages and food while we shelter in place. So the frontline workers in this battle against coronavirus are also mostly low-wage workers. Despite being the linchpins of a functional society, these workers are in many cases working without any benefits, unions, or workplace protections, especially in the private sector. Now, of course, many healthcare and public sector workers, grocery workers too, are unionized, but then there's Amazon. And right now, Amazon workers are in an unprecedented fight with the retail giant over the company's unsafe working conditions. We've seen walkouts and we've seen other actions. And the company's response to this virus has led to these protests and walkouts. So I'm really pleased to have Shaheriar Kasuji with us. He's the executive director of the Warehouse Workers Resource Center. He's been a researcher and campaigner in the workers' rights movement in California for 20 years. The Warehouse Worker Resource Center is a nonprofit organization, not a union. It supports workers in the warehouses and supply chains of the largest companies in the world, and it does education, advocacy, and action. So, Sherryar, welcome to the program. I'm really pleased to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why don't we just start by you describing what's going on at Amazon? So Amazon is, as we know, a critical company in our economy. And I think this moment has has really kind of thrown into light exactly what their role is in our economy and how they play within our economy. The, you know, as as the coronavirus epidemic has spread. Amazon has increasingly become a key part of how people get their products. Um, their their orders have soared since the coronavirus, um, especially folks who are more vulnerable are really depending on Amazon to get their goods. Folks who are already were vulnerable and sheltering in place, folks who are disabled um, and immune, immune compromised are depending on this company to, to get their basic needs. Um, the company at the same time 
it's being stretched is it's one of the only companies that's really hiring up at this point. It's really growing rapidly. They've reportedly hire or trying to hire over 150,000 people at this point to meet demand. But what we're seeing inside of the warehouses is unfortunately similar to what we're seeing in a lot of workplaces. They're not really making any kind of effort to engage workers and make sure that they're protected in the way that they should. So while they're dealing with this stress of a lot of new orders, a lot of you know increased production, they're dealing with the fact that they're second largest private employer in the country now. Hundreds and hundreds of their employees are coming down with the virus in these warehouses, and they're they're not responding to it from our perspective in the right way. Instead of being forthright, engaging with their employees about the risks, doing education, really trying to redesign their operations to address this fact and the fact that this isn't going in a way, that the fact that more and more of their workers are going to be infected and that it's an opportunity for them to really try to make sure that they can protect their workers and protect their customers. What we're seeing is that workers are not being provided with enough information about what the risks are. They're not being provided with enough information about um, what sites in their warehouses were potentially exposed. The practices of the facility are not just provision of masks and gloves, which is starting to happen a little bit, but not consistently, but they're not actually redesigning the operations to deal with social distancing. A lot of the workers, you know, are reporting to us that they're not being given adequate time to, you know, take breaks, wash their hands, um, sanitize their workstations. If they do those things, they're actually um, penalized for doing work that's not on task. And so all these different things that they're doing to protect themselves and protect the public, um, because the products coming out of these warehouses are going to, you know, homes around the country. The fact is that they're at this point, they're not doing enough to protect the, those workers or the public who are receiving those goods who are potentially affected as well. I want to go over some of the protests that have happened so far and and, and also the uh, because you just talked uh, Shahariar about the response and in these cases these are about workplace conditions but it's very much about public health as well not just public health you know for those who receive the packages that are packed at Amazon and then delivered to the public, but for those who are doing it at the workplace. And it's the response has been one that would be typical, perhaps, of any large company, sort of knee-jerk, not at a time of pandemic, where they close in, hide information, uh, do a PR thing and said, we're doing everything possible. Um, and yet, you know, this isn't the case, but, but it seemed that Workers have also been fired at different places throughout the country from Amazon for speaking out about it. And one of the complaints has been that when workers have fallen sick with COVID-19, that they have denied it and not subsequently sanitized, you know, the workplace or closed it down because there has been infection there. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that point and about the company's response and then about, you know, where they've been fired and then what the actions are. Yeah, so essentially what we've seen is uh, it's a bit of a patchwork in terms of the way that different facilities in different states have responded. But generally, we're seeing very few of these facilities actually shutting down for any period of time to clean up. And we're seeing very little um, changes in operations once there is a confirmed infection. And we know that from the Center for Disease Control's recommendations that any workplace with a confirmed infection should shut down for at least 24 hours. But also more, even more importantly, you know, change their operations, knowing that if one person has been infected, it's probably several. So again, what we're seeing is that they're saying, just get back to work, 
what we're seeing is a lot of workers um, in an unorganized manner just not coming in after they hear that there's an infection. And, you know, obviously for good reason, they're just saying, I'm just going to take time off. I'm going to take my sick days or unpaid time off because I don't want to endanger myself or my family. And at least, you know, for a little while, trying to take time off to figure out what to do um, once there's that confirmed infection. So, and conversely, that leads to the company having even more stress, right? Instead of, you know, if they're 20 or 30% of the workplace doesn't show up for work, they put even more stress on everyone else to get that, get those products through. So instead of slowing down and giving people more time to take breaks and rest or uh, wash their hands, they're actually cranking it up, cranking up the, the, the standards and, and productivity levels. One thing um, I was going to ask you just on that is that, you know, when this began, Jeff Bezos made a big deal of saying that he was going to increase uh, the hourly pay by $2. And people were saying, well, we want hazard pay, right? Yeah. And that they were going to hire 100,000 more workers. Do you know if, if uh, that part has, has gone through? The $2 an hour, and they also uh, offered to give people double time after eight, which is, you know, increased in overtime, did go through for the warehouse workers. There's also a lot, you know, tens of thousands of delivery drivers who are um, contracted through other companies, employees of third-party companies. That's usually the person who shows up at your door with an Amazon shirt on. They're not necessarily getting that consistently because every, every delivery station has a different set of contractors and they do their own thing. So those drivers who are actually the people who you will see um, in your neighborhood and your building um, are not getting that those protections. They're not necessarily getting even the same, you know, minimal kinds of masks and gloves. It's kind of a, you know, every, every company for themselves kind of situation. So in the warehouses, yes, but not consistently across the board. Okay. So let's go back then to those who have been fired for speaking out and the actions that have been organized against yes. Amazon. Yeah. So what we're seeing again across the country, in the last few weeks has been, you know, groups of workers taking action to speak up, usually after there is some number of, of infections. And so in New York City, in Detroit, and in Chicago specifically, there's been several warehouses where workers have, have spoken up, have walked out because they're concerned about the way the company is responding to these actions. There's also been a, a significant number of workers who've spoken up in other warehouses around the country, right? and um, what we've seen is that the workers have been the most prominent, uh, like Chris Smalls in New York, who is kind of the leader of the, the actions in New York City, but also some of the workers who were speaking out even before this crisis, some of the workers who spoke up in Seattle around uh, climate issues, tech to technology workers from Amazon Seattle operations have been terminated in the, in the last few weeks. So what we've seen is Amazon has been essentially cracking down on, on folks who we consider whistleblowers around safety, around operations. And we think that that's something that needs to be you know, addressed on a broader level, right? Like this isn't just a couple of rogue managers taking action. This is clearly a centralized plan um, in the last week or so to, to make sure that those who are speaking up are, are punished. And we think that there should be you know, clear action on the national level um, to, to make sure that, that kind of retaliation isn't, isn't allowed. There was an article in the LA Times last week uh, on April 9th, I think, that said, fearful of COVID-19, Amazon workers asked for state probe of working conditions. And that was about the Eastville Fulfillment Center in Riverside County. I'm assuming this is part of the sort of warehouse network that exists in the Inland Empire. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the specific conditions there and what led to um, that. Yeah, so in Eastvale, which is in uh, Riverside County, um, just a little bit 
outside of LA County in the you know western part of Riverside County. In that area, there's uh, about 14 major fulfillment centers employing well over 25,000 people. The Eastville site itself um, has at different points between three and 5,000 workers. So it's a massive facility supplying much of not just the Western United States, but the country. Um, so that site is the second site in the region that had confirmed um, COVID infections. I think there are three or four at this point that are that the company has confirmed. So essentially what happened is, you know, once that became public, the company essentially sends a robocall or an email to all their employees. Workers have been hearing about rumors in that site and other sites for, you know, significant periods of time. Workers, you know, like I said, several people, a lot of people start started not going into work. Um, we had a petition that we and some our other partners had online around making sure that there were, were some protections for workers. And hundreds of workers, you know, started signing on to those petitions, petitions asking again for the, the facilities that have confirmed cases to shut down paid leave for those workers during those times when it, the facilities are shut down, but also to change the operations to make sure that there's protective uh, masks, gloves, sanitizer, soap, you know, just the basics to make sure that people are protected. So people obviously signed on and believe that's important. And what what they did is they said, you know, well, we want to make sure that the state is taking a look at this. So um, we worked with those a group of those workers to put together a complaint those workers kind of documented what they were seeing on the ground. Traditionally, at WWRC, we've done a lot of complaints to Cal OSHA, which does look into workplace health and safety violations, which we believe are occurring here. But what we also did was we put together a complaint with some of the different information to the Riverside County Department of Public Health. Because we get, again, this is both a hazard to the workers who are, who are working in this facility and um, don't feel like it's being adequately tr- handled, but also to the public. You know, Amazon is one of the largest private employers in in the state, um, and definitely one of the largest that's currently operating at, at scale. You know, again, these facilities, three thousand people going in and out of these these workplaces every day, um, have a huge impact on Riverside, San Bernardino, and LA County's populations. They're you know, if this site is a vector for infection, then that's a you know huge problem for the the general public, and even beyond that, like I said, the you know the the virus we understand can last 24 hours on cardboard, 36 hours on plastic. All of these products coming out of an Amazon facility are going to be packaged in plastic and then cardboard. And so, again, if that product is coming out of that site, it's going to go to either a UPS facility, a U.S. Postal Service facility, or an Amazon delivery station. And obviously, postal service goes to every door in the country every day. So we think that, you know, again, products coming out of these sites need to be, you know, we need to have some sort of protocol to make sure that they're they're safe because this is, again, going to every single household in the country directly. You mentioned a couple of times now that Amazon is the second largest private employer in the country. Is Walmart still the first? Yes. It is. Okay. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, I don't know in this pandemic, if Walmart is as important in, in fulfilling and delivering as say Amazon is or Target or any of the others that use 
fulfillment centers. But um, uh, given the state of non-unionization, and maybe I could just get you for a moment, Shahariar, to talk about what it is that your organization does and does it have uh, represent all of those workers in some way or serve as a place where they go to lodge their complaints and grievances and, and you know, what kind of clout do you have? Is it similar to union clout? It is not similar to Union Cloud, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we we essentially operate as a you know an education source, and a you know we we do partner with workers to to file complaints and also to to organize directly to take action in their workplaces with workers in the su- supply chains of of Walmart, sometimes Target, and now definitely Amazon and anyone else who walks in the door. And so over the last few weeks, we have gotten a ton of complaints and and calls and requests for information from workers from dozens of warehouses, but also other kinds of workplaces, food food distribution facilities, essential workers, right? Especially we do a lot of, most of our work in the Inland Empire. So it's a region that doesn't have uh, a lot of other organizations like ours. What we've tried to do is collect information from them about what's going on, um, provide education to them. We've started doing some webinars on our social media about um both the you know the workplace rights, your right to refuse work if you're um, dealing with health and safety threats, which is you know there's some some legal protections, but the law is, is difficult in that area. But also education about you know what their options are, how the unemployment system is working right now, which is really complicated and hard because it's hard to get your claim through. Certain populations still have trouble accessing unemployment, and doing again direct you know usually through the phone because you know we're working remotely at this point. Engaging with people and trying to, you know, help them understand what their rights are, and then even connecting people with food banks, stuff like that, which is obviously obviously a big deal for folks who are unemployed. So, a lot of the what we see is the same story every time, whether it's Amazon or other employers. Unfortunately, workers are being kept in the dark. Rumors are flying, of course, in every workplace about what's happened. If there is a confirmed virus, uh, coronavirus infection. The company gives them some sort of information about that happened, but it's usually there's no real clear cleanup. There's no clear change in practices in the way the place operates. Unfortunately, the state has not given great guidance on that level to employers, except there was some guidance around grocery workers that came out a couple of days ago. But for most essential workers, they don't know what the employer is supposed to be doing, and there's very little guidance or enforcement coming from the state, whether it's Cal OSHA or any other agency. So what we, you know, we believe that there needs to be is a, some real clarity from the state, um, some executive action from the governor, because basically it's a free-for-all right now and employers are not providing information to folks. People are scared. Like I said, the basic option for people is don't go to work. That's what you do if you don't know what to do. We're talking to people about, you know, how to make sure that they can take collective action to support changes, because if you don't go to work, you're going to get starved out. You're not going to be able to provide for your family. You go back to work in a few weeks, it's going to be the same. And we know this, this, this crisis isn't going to go away. This is going to be, it's going to be like this for several months at least. So we're saying, you know, the state needs to come in and say, this is the way we're going to operate moving forward because these are essential employees and we have to protect them or else we're all, all in real trouble. We have about a minute left, and I just wondered if there are any actions that, let's say, are organized by the community around these centers or involving the workers themselves that we could, you know, learn about or participate um, in. At this point, what we're what we're doing is 
in the next few days, we are going to be rolling out some petitions. We have petitions for workers. We're going to be rolling out some petitions for community in terms of, again, these demands that we're making of the state and of employers to make sure that they do protect these workers, make sure that they're safe. So um, you can go to warehouseworkers.org, warehouseworkers, plural. You go to our Facebook. On the national level, Athena for All is the national network of worker organizations that are organizing in different regions around the country. So if you're not necessarily in Southern California, go to Athena, athenaforall.org, and you can connect with a local organization that is bringing workers together. Thank you so much for joining us today, Shaheriar Kasuji. He is the executive director of the Warehouse Worker Resource Center. And he uh, says, go to their website and also to the Athena for All to learn about other organizing efforts and things that you can do. And right now, they have been campaigning and researching for workers' rights in California and specifically in the warehouses and supply chains. And that does mean Amazon. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>